Jesus House in pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential, impacting lives. This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London. God bless you. Let's go straight into the Word of God. Uh, today, if you wanted a title for this message, um, then the title uh, should be, will be, is Jethro's Principles. Father, please bless your Word. Let it transform our lives. Let it uh, direct us in the path that we should take. Uh, let it just show us your heart and show us, reveal more of yourself to us, your Son, Jesus, through your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen. Exodus, the 18th chapter. Would love to read the entire chapter to you, but conscious of time, I'm just going to paraphrase that chapter. Um, when Moses obeyed God's call and went to Egypt uh, to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into God's promises, he left behind his wife, uh, Zipporah, uh, who was the daughter of the priest of Midian, a, gent a man called Jethro, uh, and his two children, Geshem and Elisa. And um, when he arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, um, this is uh, after he had left Egypt with the children of Israel, gone through the Red Sea, they'd had a, a, a series of encounters with God along the way. Um, Jethro, who had heard about what God had done for Moses and the children of Israel, how he had delivered them with a mighty hand, uh, asked his daughter Zipporah and, and his grandsons to get ready. He was taking them to meet their father. Um, and so he arrives at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai where Moses was with the children of Israel um, with his daughter uh, Zipporah and Moses' two sons Geshem and Eliza. Um, and when they, <clears throat> when they get there, Moses of course is excited to see his father-in-law and his, and his family um, and he takes his father-in-law into the tent, tent and regales his father-in-law with all that God has done for them. God's mighty hand of deliverance, God's provision, God's love, God's care. You know, and as he, as he tells the stories to Jethro, you know, Jethro is, is taken in by the stories. He's, he's amazed at the, the, the awesomeness of God, the power of God, uh, how God has protected his own, provided for his own. And it leads him to a point where he begins to literally praise God. He declares that God is God above all the other gods. And then from there, he decides he's going to worship God, uh, give a sacrifice to God, a burnt offering to God, and then sits down to have a celebratory meal with Aaron, Moses' brother, and the other elders in, in Israel. And then, he, of course, he spends the night there, and the next morning, he gets up to see his son at work and his son is sitting there at work uh, deciding disputes and giving judgments to the children of Israel, listening to all their challenges and their problems, proffering wisdom. And he watches his son from morning till night, from morning till sunset, as his son sits there and, and just gives judgment wisdom, advice, you know, uh, counsel. And at the end of it, he says to his son, you, his son-in-law, he says to his son-in-law, you simply can't continue like this. If you do, you will die. 
This workload is to strain us. No one can carry this workload. And he says to him, I have an idea as to what you should do. And you, I, you can ask God, but this is the idea I have as to what you should do. I think that you should appoint from these people leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And that you should teach the people God's statutes. Because part of what Moses did, as you observed, was the people would come, Moses would tell them God's statutes, explain God's statutes to, to them, and then give a decision as to whatever issue they had brought to him. He says, no, teach these people God's statutes. Let them learn God's statutes themselves. And then appoint over them the heads of thousands, heads of hundreds, heads of fifties, heads of tens. And let them decide most matters. Only if the matter is a complex and complicated one, should they bring it to you. And then you are free to stand before God on their behalf. Because only the complex and complicated matters will be brought to you. And Moses thought that's a good idea. And so Moses instituted that idea. And it worked. So Moses was free to stand before God. And then leaders were chosen and the criterion for choosing, or criteria for cho choosing the leaders were, was that they are able men who are honest, trustworthy, God-fearing, who are not covetous, they are not greedy. Choose those kind of men to be leaders and let them solve these problems so that you're free to stand before God and only the complex and complicated ones will be brought to you. Fantastic system was put in place and that probably saved Moses' life. Well, how does that apply to us? Well, there are seven principles in that whole story that we can learn that will stand us in good stead as we press into God's plans and purposes for our lives. Going to run through those principles very quickly. So please note those principles. Seven of those principles. Number one principle. God expects us to tell. He expects us to testify, to tell of his good works, to tell of his faithfulness, to tell of his deliverance. The very foundation of Christianity is that we are testifiers. We are called to tell. Now, in Exodus, the 18th chapter and the 8th verse, the Bible says that Moses told, Moses told his father-in-law, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Moses told, he sat his father-in-law down and he says, I need, to I need to tell you what God has done, how he has been good to us, how he has delivered us, how he has protected us, how he has provided for us. And even when we went, went through hard times, I need to tell you how God was there for us and how God delivered us. You know, it is what commends the psalmist to God and what should commend the psalmist to us. That the psalmist had a habit of telling. Listen to what he says in Psalm 66 verses 5 and 16. Verse 5, he says, come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. Verse 16, he says, come and hear all you, all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. It's really a challenge to us. You know, it would seem that, that Satan by subtlety has got the church to a, to a place where telling 
has become old-fashioned. We don't testify like we should. We don't tell like we should. You know what? I might not be able to explain the exegesis of, of certain texts. I might not be able to explain the deeper dimensions of theology. I might not be able to explain that to someone who doesn't know God, but surely I can tell what God has done for me. For it was to me that God did it. I can tell what God has done for my family. And you know, it's instructive that here was a man who wasn't of the faith. He was the priest of Midian. But then he was moved by what he heard Moses telling him about God's faithfulness. Why don't you talk a lot more about what God has done? Testify, proclaim, declare it. You know, really shout it from the rooftops. Look for every opportunity to point people to a loving, faithful, caring, compassionate, merciful God that is your Father. There is some merit in telling and God expects us to tell. The second thing which follows on from the first is that our telling causes God to be praised. You know, it was Moses' telling that moved Jethro to the point where he began to praise and worship God himself and declare God's goodness. Exodus, the 18th chapter, verses 9 to 12. Then, after Moses had told him, then Jethro, Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro rejoiced for what Moses had told him. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hands of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro was saying, Blessed is the Lord who has done this for you. Now I know, he goes on to declare, that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Do you know that it was Moses' testimony of God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's favor, God's provision, God's protection that converted his father-in-law to be a worshiper of God? Do you know how many would have become worshippers of God if they could hear your story, hear your testimony, hear my story, hear my testimony? Or how many within the faith will be encouraged in their own work as they go through their own work, as they go through their, own, their, their hardships or their trials, if they heard us testify and tell of the goodness of God? Make sure you tell of the goodness of God. God expects this of us and it touches the hearts of others when we do so. Number three, principle three, the third principle. To enter fully into what God has planned for us, a mindset change must take place. You see, the children of Israel had their minds conditioned. 430 years of slavery had conditioned their minds. They, they, they thought like, like slaves. They behaved like slaves. So even though they were free, their experience in the past, their circumstances in the past had conditioned their minds so that the, the truth was that they were free, but their minds were still the minds of slaves. Now, how many times is that true in our walk with God? We have been redeemed. We have been set free from the, from the tyranny of Satan. But then the circumstances that Satan used to trap us 
has conditioned our minds. So we are free, but we are still walking or thinking or behaving uh, like we are still in bondage. How many times do we meet people or do we know of ourselves where an experience that was negative, that, that was bad, an experience that, that we had in the past has shaped our, our thinking. It's called a mindset. It, en it encases the mind and affects how we deal with life and how we deal with others. For us to fully enjoy the freedom that God has brought our way, we have to, as Christians, be set free in our minds. We have to have that mindset change that is absolutely necessary. We can't function in reject within the constraints of rejection because of something in the past. We can't function with fear because of something in the past. We can't have a mindset that makes us unduly suspicious because of something in the past. We can't allow any of those negative things to form a stronghold in our minds. Our mindsets must change. And how do our mindsets, how, how does our mindset change? Well, Romans, the 12th chapter and the second verse, the Passion Translation says, Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in his eyes. How do we change that mindset? How do we change the ideals and opinions that that have shaped us, the culture that has shaped us. And isn't it, isn't it amazing as to how culture shapes you in much the same way that your past experience shapes you? Look at the culture of today. It's a materialistic culture. It's a culture that, that induces and, 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 and a culture that encourages greed and covetousness. And it's there for us on social media, the programs we watch. It's a culture now increasingly that is introducing fear into our lives. But then how do we change that? How do we break away from those constraints? Well, the Bible says that the way we do that, we institute a mindset change, is that we are inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit so that our way of thinking is reformed. That's the revolution that Jesus brought. It was a revolution to change our minds change our mindsets, change our way of thinking. It's a tragedy to be a citizen of the kingdom and not think in the way of the kingdom. It's a tragedy to be free, but still have the mindset of a slave, of someone who's in bondage. And there are so many in Christianity who are free, but still have the mindset of the, of the person who is in bondage. And so our encouragement is, let the Spirit of God do it. How does the Spirit of God do it? By the Word of God. The Word and the Spirit is what brings our freedom. And so we cannot get free except our minds are renewed. Our way of thinking is reformed. Our way of thinking is reformed by us staying in the Word of God, studying it, meditating it, confessing the Word of God, allowing the Spirit of God to breathe on the Word of God. And as a result, we, we acquire the thinking of God, the mind of Christ, the kingdom mindset that guarantees that we walk in the benefits of our freedom. 
and you know how we discover God's will? That's always a question on the mind of, of, of us as Christians. How do I know God's will for me? Well, the Bible says quite clearly that as we go through this reformation of our mind by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God, as we get closer to the Spirit, deeper in the Word of God, the Bible says we begin to discern what God's will is. We suddenly become clear that this is God's will for me and this is not God's will for me. And that is the way we enter this, what the Bible calls this beautiful life that is satisfying and perfect in God's eyes. A mindset change must take place. Number four, fourth principle. We must recover our identity to step into what God has for us. You know, if there's one thing that we have labored under before Christ, it was that our identity was stolen in the Garden of Eden. And part of why Christ came, part of the benefits of redemption for you and I, is not just that we are going to heaven. That is the ultimate and that is the destination. But it is that while we are here on earth fulfilling God's plans and purposes, we do so with our identity restored. We can answer the question, who am I? You see, we must know beyond a shadow of doubt that we are not slaves, we are sons and daughters. We must discover who we are in Christ. Our strength is that we are in Christ and that we know who we are in, in Christ. That is our strength against whatever life throws at us. That we are not slaves, neither are we servants, by the way. We have graduated in the new covenant from being servants. In the Old Testament, they walked as servants. And, and, and that was good. They were servants of God. But you and I have moved up by what Jesus did at the cross. We are not servants, definitely not slaves, but we are sons and daughters, children of God. And we must recover our identity. And how do we recover our identity? It's a simple analogy, but I hope it drives it home. We started by being made in the image of God. But something blurred that image. Sin blurred that image. And if you can imagine standing in front of a mirror and the mirror has been the mirror is blurred because because some film, something that is dirty has covered the mirror. But Christ came with his blood and washed the mirror, even as he washed us clean. And suddenly we can see the image in the mirror. That's who we are like. We were made in his image and his likeness. The longer we behold that image and the closer we come to that image, the, the more we are transformed into that image and we become more and more like him. Then the more, of course, we discover our true identity, that that is who I am. So I want to encourage you to stay in the word of God. The word of God is a revelation of Christ. And as Christ is revealed, we discover who we are in him and we discover our place in him. That's why I take a lot of encouragement from my wife, Shala, who's encouraging us along the lines of confessions of the word of God and confessing who we are in Christ. So why don't you search the word and find what God says about yourself and confess who you are as you do so. Who the enemy says you are is stripped away as you declare who you are in Christ. Recover 
your identity. Number five is a discovery of purpose. That, of course, is the question, why am I here? You know, why am I here? What am I doing here on earth? What is God's purpose for me? God is a God of purpose. We mustn't forget that. Nothing happens by chance with God. Everything is part of a plan and part of a purpose. So we must discover our purpose in much the way that the children of Israel, led by, by, by Moses' instructions on the advice of Jethro, started to discover their true identity, not slaves, but they began to discover who they were in Christ and then started to discover also their purpose. Leaders were suddenly appointed from people who had thought their only lot was to be slaves. Leaders of thousands were appointed. Leaders of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens were appointed. People suddenly started to discover purpose in their lives. And you know, as Miles Monroe, the wonderful mentor of, of, of ours, who went, who has gone to be with the Lord, helped us understand that if the purpose of a thing is not known, it will be abused. If the purpose of your life is not known, abuse is inevitable. And I love the two words that come together to form that word abuse, abnormal and used. Your life will be abnormally used if the purpose of your life is not discovered. So we have to discover the purpose. How do we discover the purpose? It's in God. It is the closer we get to Him. It is what the Bible says, we discern God's will. The closer we get in fellowship to the Spirit, the study of the Word, you can't find yourself apart from the Word of God. You can't discover why you're here apart from the Word of God. It's the manufacturer's manual. It tells you the reason the product was created, the reason you are here. It's in the Word of God. Listen to this scripture, Jeremiah, the first chapter, verses four and five. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, the word came to tell him who he was. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now that is powerful. Pause there. Before you were a physical thing, before a sperm met an egg, and there was the process that takes place to start to form a fetus that became you. That was you. Before that, God says, I knew you. That's powerful. What is God saying? Think about it to its logical conclusion. God is saying that you didn't start be because you were a thing. You were already existing in me. That's what God is saying. Now think about it. Follow it to the logical conclusion. What God is saying, and this is mind-blowing, this brings worth to an individual. God is saying, because I needed you to come, I orchestrated your parents to meet themselves. Part of their purpose in meeting each other was to create a pathway for you to come. That's how worthy you are, how much worth you have in God's eyes. So don't let anybody demean you and devalue you. You are precious to God. He had you in himself and then he created the circumstances. Your parents met, believe it or not, because they needed to meet to create a pathway for you to come. That's why there can never be an illegitimate child. No, it, it, they might think so in the natural, but for God, no chi child is illegitimate. Every child 
was born from a God of purpose with a purpose to be fulfilled. It's just that there's a massive conspiracy once a person is born to make sure the person does not discover his purpose. I, I pray you will discover your purpose. He says, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you were born, before you were born, I already sanctified you. I set you apart. I had a plan for you. I called you to myself before you were born. And then he goes on to say, and I love this, I ordained you a prophet to the nation. What is he saying? I empowered you. I equipped you. I prepared the grace. I wired you to fulfill my call on your life. And your call is to be a prophet to the nation. Of course, your call is different from mine, but it's the same principle that God has put in place. He knew you. He, or he, he sanctified you, set you apart, consecrated you, had a plan for you. And then he equipped you, wired you, and ordained you, gave you the grace, put along the journey those who would help your destiny to fulfill his purpose. You must discover God's purpose. It's God's purpose that took slaves to the place of leadership. God's purpose will take you to the place of promotion. Number six, principle six. You must also discover God's gifts. God has wired gifts into each one of us to help us fulfill his purpose. What a wicked father. If he gave us things to do, called us to do certain things and didn't equip us to do it. He's equipped us to do it. He's given us gifts. Of course, the primary gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to empower us and enable us to do it. Uh, another gift are what he calls, what the Bible calls the gifts of the Son. Uh, which are the fivefold ministry. Uh, by what I'm doing as a pastor preaching to you, I'm helping you discover your gifts. The evangelist helps you start the journey by winning us to Christ. Uh, the prophet discerns God's mind and, and tells us what God is saying. The apostle, the apostle oversees the entire process of the work and the teacher breaks down the word of God. So the fivefold ministry is a gift, but then there is also a set of gifts that God has given himself and woven this into your person. The tragedy, again, as Miles Monroe would say, is that the graveyard is full of many people who never discovered their purpose, never discovered the gifts, and just existed through life. You must discover what God put in you. And there's a scripture that Shola and I love. We, she's preached about, she's preached from it, I've preached from it many times. It drives on this point. First Peter, the fourth chapter and the 10th verse. I read the Amplified Classic Version. As each of you has received a gift, a particular spiritual talent, a gracious divine endowment. Let me break down the scripture bit by bit. Each of you, there is nobody who is born, who hasn't received a gift. Whether the person has discovered it is another thing, but there's no one who comes to this earth who's not wired with the gift of gifts from God, particular spiritual talents, gracious divine endowments to fulfill God's plans and purposes. Each of you has a gift. What is your gift? Do you know what your gifts are? Have you spent time with God have you gone through a process? Have you read the word so that you can discover what gifts God has put in you? He says, as each of you has received the gift, employ it for one another. The purpose of the gifts is gifts are to serve one another. You've received your gift to serve one another. I pray you're being blessed by my gift this morning as I share the word of God with you. 
Uh, you also have a gift that will bless me. And they vary these gifts. They are all not the same. They are as varied as God is capable of creating variety. He says, employ it for one another. We must use the gifts to serve each other. The gift blossoms when it is employed in service to one another. He says, employ it as good trustees of God's many-sided grace. What does that mean? That we are given the gift to employ it as trustees. We are asked to employ it as good trustees of God's many-sided grace. Faithful stewards of the extremely diverse powers and gifts granted to Christians by unmerited favor. Those gifts are given to us by unmerited favor. No one can boast about it. No one can brag about it. It is ridiculous to do so. To be arrogant about something that you got by unmerited favor, something you didn't earn, you didn't work for, out of grace and mercy, God just wove it into your person. Anybody who boasts about it is purely ignorant. On the contrary, you're humbled by your gift because you see, what is a gift to you makes it easier than normal to do certain things that others might struggle to do. And you realize it's not my strength, it's not my power. It is just the grace of God. You know, when you meet people who are numerate, you're amazed at it. I am so not numerate. I flunked all my math exams. I did not have it as a gift in any way. If I would worked harder, I might have got a basic pass. But I didn't work as hard as I should. But it wasn't a gift. But then I know people who have gifts. My younger brother was, is, is very numerate. He remembers every number in his head. And I'm amazed at, at it. But I realize it's a gift that God has given him. What gift has God given you? You must find that gift and employ it to serve others. And as stewards, we will one day be asked to give an account of our gifts. As surely as God lives, one day we are going to be asked, what did you do with the voice? What did you do with that gift? What did you do with that skill? What did you do with that ability, that writing gift? Uh, what did you do with that administrative gift? What did you do with that hospitality, that gift of hospitality that you have? What did you do? And we're going to be asked those questions. So what is your gift and are you employing it? And lastly, the seventh principle is the importance of character. It is not the kingdom way to set someone up to fail and to give people certain levels of promotion without the character that goes with that promotion is to set people up to fail. And that is not the kingdom way. Now, look at the story that we just we spoke about in Exodus, the 18th chapter. When it came to time to promote people to leadership, there, was, there were certain criteria that were the criteria of, pro, of promotion. Verse 21, select able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and then promote them. So what is the Bible saying? That, there's, that character is the key to promotion in the kingdom of God. That God is not setting anybody up to fail. And also God is aware of the consequences that can come to the church when people fail, where they are promoted to places where their character cannot carry those places. A lot of us want to move forward, but our character is holding us back. 
Isn't it instructive that before Jesus went into ministry, he overcame this issue. He, 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 he showed his strength in this area. Matthew, the fourth chapter and the first verse. Afterward, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the lonely wilderness in order to reveal his strength against the accuser by going through the ordeal of testing. What is the ordeal of testing for? It's to determine in a testing, in a, in a testing environment whether the product is capable of functioning in, a, in an external environment the way the builder, the manufacturer expects it to function. That's why you test cars in a testing environment so that when they get onto the road, they function how the manufacturer wants them to function. And so God will find this test, testing environment so that we don't get in out there we don't get out there and collapse completely with calamitous consequences for ourselves, our loved ones, and for the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this test will always be around three areas. How do I know that? It's the three areas where Eve and Adam failed the test. It's the three areas where Jesus succeeded magnificently in the test. And in Christ, we now have the power to overcome in those three areas. It's the lust of the flesh, the, the craving for physical pleasure from sinful activities, the overpowering desire and craving of our flesh for, 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 for something that is sinful to please our flesh. And a lot of times it has to do with the sensual, that overpowering desire that drives us to do something that shows that our character is not yet where it should be in that area because we can't control the flesh. Now, it's not that we control it ourselves, but we control it in the spirit of God. So the loss of the flesh, that, that's how a lot of this testing of character uh, takes place. Then the loss of the eyes, the appeal of the eyes, the, the over, overpowering desire to have something that we've set our eyes on. And don't we see it all the time? Isn't that the whole essence of, of, of adverts? To lure us by what we see, to want what we have seen, irrespective of the cost to us. And oftentimes the cost can be disastrous, damaging, as people, for example, pile up debts, buying things that they don't need. And hasn't this pandemic and this lockdown proven that a lot of these things are just vanity upon vanity? The loss of the eyes, I must have that bag, I must have those shoes. I must go into debt for that car. I must be like so-and-so. They've got a new house. I must get a new house. So godliness and contentment goes out of the window. And then the third test is always around the pride of life, the arrogance, the boastfulness, the pride, the pride in self. You know, that whole concept of I'm a self-made man is one of the most foolish phrases I have ever heard in my life, if you understand anything about life and anything about God. The whole concept of a self-made man. There's nothing like a self-made man. It is grace, it is mercy, it is the unfailing love of God. The pride of life, the thing that makes us elevate ourselves above others, look down on others. And sometimes it doesn't mean that we say it. It can sit, the throne of pride can sit in our hearts and go through our thoughts. But God sees our hearts and God knows. And that's how we fail the test of character. Now, how can we overcome the test of character? Only by the Spirit of God. We don't have the willpower to stand against some of these overpowering lusts that try to seize control of us. We don't have it. We don't have the willpower. We need the Spirit of God to help us 
as we as as the spirit works through us to overcome and to pass the test of character the instruction was choose able men choose men who are god-fearing choose men who are honest choose men who are not greedy uh, that that's always the test for god to use you at a high level you want promotion then why don't you pass the test of character with what god has where god has given you have you passed the test of character then you can move on to the next level hallelujah hallelujah praise god seven principles that we must imbibe on this journey. We must learn to tell. We must know that telling causes others, including those who don't yet know Christ, to praise him. We must change our mindset, get it, the mind of Christ, what I call a kingdom mentality. We must answer the question who I am, recover our identity. We must discover why I'm here, what is our purpose. We must find out, identify, and diligently release by diligence the gifts that God has put in us. And we must build godly character so that God can trust us. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you and we bless you. We glorify your name. Now, if you haven't started this journey, you, then you can get the help of the Holy Spirit. All these things I have shared are just titillating thoughts without the Spirit of God. How do I get the Spirit of God? By accepting Christ as my Savior, by accepting God as my Father. And how do I get that? By just welcoming Him into my heart, as simple as that. So why don't you, if you haven't, say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for your Spirit. Today, I welcome your son Jesus into my heart, into my life. I receive him as my Lord and Savior. I receive your spirit into my heart, into my life. I declare that by your grace, I will turn away from sin and live a life that is pleasing to you. I am now a child of yours. Your son Jesus is now my Lord and Savior. Your spirit is now resident in me. I thank you, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.